Father God, it is humbling to be in a room with so many people who love you and desire to hear from you today. And um, my prayer to you, Lord, is that in the few minutes that we have here, Father, that you would be gracious to me, your servant, and to these people who you love and cherish to come here in great power and to display your beauty to us to the deepest parts of our hearts that need to hear it. I pray that your grace would be applied not only to us, but to the kids over there through Paige and through the different uh, people who are leading and teaching over there, Father. I pray that your grace would, would collide with our hearts here, Father, that in the reading of your word that you would do a great thing, that we would hear your voice, and that in our hearts would be catalyzed a desire to press in further to learn about this God who saved us. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. If you've got your Bibles, please turn to Colossians 1. We have actually been here for the last four weeks. This is week five, and some of you are going to be excited to hear that we are starting in verse five today instead of verse one, which is uh, progress. Um, before we dive into the text, I want to just spend a few seconds here catching up um, everyone on where we are and uh, what we've read so far. So Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, has been writing this letter or is writing this letter with Timothy <clears throat> to the church at Colossae, who are a, a small pocket of believers who Paul, believe it or not, hasn't seen most of them face-to-face yet. Chapter 2, verse 1 says, I haven't seen you guys. And so the, the, the majority of these people here, um, he has never seen, um, but he feels compelled to engage them. We're going to find out how they came to faith here this week. But um, last week, we talked about this unshakable hope that one day we will be glorified with Christ Jesus. One day we will be like him. And the reason for that glorification is that he intends to bring us to his Father. He intends to bring us to God for unending, ever-increasing joy. That's our hope. Psalm 16 says, In his presence, in the presence of God, there is fullness of joy, maximal joy. And at his right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. That's our hope. Unending joy for eternity in the presence of our God and King. Now this hope is communicated, Paul says, through something called the word of the truth, the gospel. And that's where we're going to begin today in the middle of verse 5. <clears throat> you guys ready? All right, let's do it. So of this, this is in the middle of verse 5, of this, he's talking about the hope that we talked about last week. You have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it, is also, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So today we are beginning a, a series called The Harvest, and it focuses on three verses. We're going to spend a few weeks here. Um, 
And these three verses really have massive implications on who we are as a people and what God's called us to do. Now, Paul is talking about some incredible things at the beginning here. He's talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's talking about the word of truth, or as in verse um, 6, which we'll get to in a few weeks, God's grace in truth. And what I want to spend a few uh, of the next weeks on, the reason why I want to walk through these verses kind of slowly and look at them is because um, we have to ask a question, like, what is Paul doing here, talking about the gospel? Uh, Is he just recounting these events for posterity? Is he just trying to remind the Colossian church, this is how it happened, this is how you got saved? Or is he doing something else by communicating the gospel? Is there something here that Paul is building, which everything else in this letter will be connected to? And so, (laughs) the question I want to ask here is, um, or actually the statement, the response I want to give to this is, the reason why this is so critical to Paul is because the gospel is that critical. There is really nothing more important that he could ever discuss with these people. And so at the beginning of this letter, he wants to establish a foundation because the gospel for a Christian is foundational to everything. It undergirds all aspects of the Christian's life. And (laughs) what Paul's doing here effectively is he is building up forms and he's pouring concrete because he plans in the course of this letter to build high. He plans to build very high. Um, There are things in this letter, as we get deeper in chapter one, you'll see this, where we dive into the entire course of redemptive history. There's a section of five verses that's called the Christ hymn, and it lifts up Jesus Christ's unparalleled worth and glory. And I'm dying, I've been dying since I wanted to go into Colossians to get to that section but all in good time. This letter deals with major realities, not only of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, but really what it means to be, period. And uh, I th- at the very beginning, Paul wants to build a foundation so that everything can sit on it, and that foundation is the gospel. It is the source and the fulcrum of what the Colossians believe, and for the next few weeks, we're going to eat, sleep, breathe the gospel. What is the gospel? What does it do? Why is it important? Not only for evangelism, not only to reach people who don't know about Jesus Christ, but why is it important for us every day of our lives, for our individual sanctification? Why is the gospel needed for Christians? <laughs> like Paul's bringing it to Colossian Christians here. So let's track with Paul in these verses. Um, He begins by telling them how this gospel is spreading across the world. He says it's bearing fruit like a harvest, and it's covering the whole of the known world. And then he shifts gears and he says, it's not only growing out of people, like you're not only adding numbers to your gatherings, but it's growing people not just out, but up. It's growing people up. People are becoming more like Christ since Epaphras brought this message to them. And this encounter, like Jesus often does, has turned their lives upside down. They are completely different people. They are suddenly bearing fruit in good works, which is what it says in verse 10. Then Paul spends some time here in the beginning um, talking about this man, Epaphras. He calls him a servant or a slave. The literal word is doulos in the Greek, a slave of Christ. He is a faithful minister. 
And the question we've got to ask about Epaphras is this, is he some sort of like on fire, radical missionary who's willing to give his life for Christ? Or is he simply describing, in describing Epaphras' ministry, an everyday Christian, what we are all called to be? And we're going to get to that in a few weeks. But let's zero in on what exactly Paul is talking about when he says the word gospel. What does he mean? What is going through Paul's mind when he says gospel in his letters? He refers to this gospel, this word, this, uh, this gospel as the word of truth, the word of the truth. And so let's start with that. Whatever you think about the gospel, whatever your opinion is about the gospel, whatever you believe about the nuts and bolts of what it is, it is irrelevant if you can't start with the fact that it is true. If you can't begin with the fact that the gospel is true, then what does it matter? Who cares what Jesus did and who he is if what he did and who he is isn't true? <clears throat> Paul is saying that Christianity isn't, by saying it's the word of the truth, it isn't just a number of religious expressions of equal value. Paul uh, would have no framework to be able to fathom that aspect of thinking, except in our modern culture, you hear a lot of times that in terms of subjectivity, every belief has equal merit. Every concept has equal merit. We're all on this journey together, and they're all individually good, um, even if they're untrue because they benefit society as a whole. Paul would say to that, no, that's not the case. Um, there is one way, and it is good and true, and everything for Paul hinges on the gospel. So he brings the gospel right at the beginning of this letter, front and center for them. Uh, Acts 4.12, Peter, preaching the gospel, says, There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Peter is saying, Christ alone, Christ alone, Christ alone. This hope that the Colossians have embraced, Paul wants them to know. He wants them to set their mind at ease. This isn't a delusion. This isn't false. This isn't a mistake. This is true. And in fact, if you just let your mind sort of contemplate about the gospel in the course of human history and existence as a whole, <clears throat> there isn't anything more true than the gospel. Um, because if the gospel is true, if it really is true, then believing in it and trusting in it gives you eternal life. So therefore, it is eternally true. Every fact that you believe in this world, um, whether it's true or not, actually only has finite consequences for the most part. In fact, most facts have extraordinarily finite consequences. But if the gospel is true, believing it is, the matter, is a matter of eternality. Um, the gospel is always relevant while other truths are ephemeral, are temporary and transient, they might be relevant today, but who's to say tomorrow they're going to still mean the same things? Um, so at the start of our time, the first thing I want to look at, is, at the gospel is recognizing that it is true. It's always true. It is always relevant to any time, to any place. That's what he means when he says the word of the truth. Secondly, Paul uses 
the very word gospel to define the message that he's talking about. Now, our culture, when you say the word gospel, it's usually used as an adjective. It's usually used to describe gospel music, or that was a gospel conversation, or um, he's living a gospel lifestyle, or something like that. In the Greek, the word euangelion, which is the, the word for gospel, is actually a noun. It's not an adjective. It has a very specific meaning, and its meaning is important because it's used everywhere in the New Testament. Everywhere you turn, euangelion is being used. And it's a word um, that means literally good news. Good news. Now, here's the thing. <laughs> if, there is, if it is good news, for us to understand really fully what the good news is, we kind of have to know why. Why do we need good news? Um, in order for good news to enter a situation and be good news, be what it is, what it says it is, the situation can't be good that it enters into. A good report is only good to listen to if the status right now is not good. We're missing something. So here's an example. <clears throat> Some of you guys may be able to relate with this. Imagine I am the recipient of a lifetime supply of Lucky Charms. Some of you guys are, are like, yeah, I'm on board for that. Some of you guys are like, that's gross. That's gross. Uh, you should have a different cereal than that. Um, lifetime supply of Lucky Charms. One morning, you find me with a few boxes at my dinner table. They are open. They're full to the brim. I've got a massive, like, salad bowl size bowl <laughs> filled to the top, overflowing with Lucky Charms. And my wife walks in. This is me and my lifetime supply. My wife walks in and she says, she's got grocery bags. She's just been to the store. She says, Jeremy, good news. I have brought you Lucky Charms. Now, my response to her would be first to look at her blankly for like five seconds and then back at the table. Um, and then I would thank her for the Lucky Charms because nobody ever says no to an extra box of Lucky Charms. But what I would be thinking in my mind was, why did she do that? I already have a lifetime supply of Lucky Charms. I don't need Lucky Charms. She should have bought Captain Crunch. <laughs> what was she thinking? Now, let me paint a different picture for you. I've been up since 5 a.m. I have no cereal. There's no cereal in the house at all. I have an empty bowl in front of me and an empty box in front of me, and I am hungry, famished, starving. And my wife walks in, and she has a box of Lucky Charms. That is good news. And the reason I'm painting this picture here is because I want you to see that in order for good news to show up, there needs to be bad news. The existence of the gospel is precluded by the existence of the opposite of the gospel. Horrible news that necessitated intervention, and that intervention is the gospel. So what is the horrible news? What is the horrible news? Why does this book say that we need the gospel constantly? Well, I'm going to, in a second, let Scripture speak for itself. I'm just going to read the Bible. And I want to tell you something at the start of this. <clears throat> I just had an illustration about cereal, so this is a hard right turn. <laughs> I'm going to tell you something at the start of this. Hold on as we get through this text. I'm going to be reading to you heavy things from the Word of God. And I want to promise you up front that if you hang in there with me, 
There is joy on the other end. There is happiness on the other end. But these things are the heaviest things in reality, period. Psalm 52, 2 through 3. You guys with me? Let's do this. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. And his assessment is they have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Before we go any further, let's consider something here. Imagine this God for a second being described. Perfect in every way. Beautiful beyond imagining. This God has no equal, no rival. He is completely glorious and worthy of praise and he has existed for eons upon eons in complete peace and joy within the resplendent glory that he alone possesses. He has designed man in such a way that our highest capacity for fulfillment, our highest capacity for joy would be found only in him. He has made us for himself to enjoy what he has always enjoyed for eternity, the unequaled splendor of his beauty. And humanity, all of us, we were made to know him and to embrace him as our treasure, the greatest reality in the universe. <clears throat> He's the fountainhead of our joy. Everything we delight in in this world is from him, is a reflection at diminuting agree- degrees of glory, of who he is, his beauty. Um, and what we are saying in this psalm, what's being said in this psalm of his assessment of mankind, their response to him is that they are in their actions, in their desires, in their affections, looking up at God and saying, I do not love you. I do not want you. And I wish you were dead. And so, I will act as though you are. That's what it means when the psalmist says, you have fallen away. That's what sin is. That's what iniquity is. The act of sin is a statement to God, you are dead to me. And it is the greatest tragedy in the world. Isaiah 59 elaborates for us the result of this tragedy, what happens in a world where God's image bearers live as though he isn't God. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear you. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. Their feet run to evil, and they are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know. And there is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked, and no one who treads on them knows peace. Now, <laughs> what is a fitting response to the God we just encountered in Scripture to this rebellion? What is a fitting, objectively, 
What is a fitting and right thing for God to do if he's really that wonderful and if humanity is what these texts are saying? How should he respond? Well, Isaiah 13 gives us a glimpse. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty, it will come. Therefore, all hands will be feeble, and every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord, the day of Yahweh, comes cruel with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. This is horrible news. And if I'm real with you, just transparent, I have a hard time believing that it could get any worse than this, except for the fact that if you've read your Bible, you know that it does. 2 Thessalonians 2, 7 through 10, the Lord will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day. If I can be blunt and straightforward with you, there isn't a situation worse than what I just described. There is none. I challenge your minds. Conceive of something in the human lexicon that is worse than the words eternal and destruction next to each other. There is nothing like that. This is the darkest possible, worst imaginable scenario. <laughs> now here is the point that I'm excited about. We get to pivot from here and ask a question. How can anything good come from this? And I'm going to use three verses strung together, three passages strung together to define what the Bible says the gospel really is. What the Bible is communicating through the word euangelion when Paul speaks it in Colossians 1.5. Here they are. We're going to start in Romans. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They lack the glory that he has displayed in creation. They don't want it. <laughs> but they are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Corinthians will say, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And then in Colossians, and you, all of us, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he, God, Christ Jesus, has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present all of you who trust in him holy, as holy and blameless and above reproach before him. That, my friends, is the gospel. There is freedom from all of those verses that I just described. The good news about what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross is the gospel. And it is the greatest news in the world. 
that this darkness, all of that darkness that I described, that's in the Bible, can be undone, is amazing. Now, ironically, one of the most detailed accounts about what actually happens to Jesus Christ was recorded 700 years prior to Jesus actually walking the earth in the book of Isaiah. In fact, the book of Isaiah, <coughs> excuse me, in, in, in a lot of theological circles is referred to as the gospel of Isaiah because it's so Christological, so Christ-centered that it is a shock and an amazement even to Jewish rabbis who don't believe in Christ that it's so Christ-centered, so Christ-exalting. Now, I want to read a passage from Isaiah 53. It's 11 verses, so it's long, but I tried to figure out a verse I could cut or skip to make it shorter, but none of them are that. So I'm going to read 11 verses straight, and what I want you to do is this. Um, I want you to think about every word. We were not given this book so that we would think coldly about the words that are inside of this. They are the words of the living God. So I want you to think, even if you have to close your eyes, and I want you to grapple with the spiritual realities that we're going to be looking at in these 11 verses. And I want you, my, my prayer is that you would feel the weight of them as they relate to the person, the man, who came to rescue you. You. Personalize this. Let's not make this global. It is global. Think about your name and your face in his mind as he contemplated before eternity, this is what was going to happen. <clears throat> Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, Jesus Christ, grew up before him, before God, like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, all we, were like sheep that have gone astray. We have turned every single one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence not a single drop of violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet, amazingly, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. 
But when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he, Christ, shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge, he shall, the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Praise be to the living God. That risen hope is the gospel of Jesus Christ, 700 years before Jesus actually walked on the earth. It's that by the blood of Jesus Christ, anyone who believes, anyone who believes, who trusts in this great work, receives remarkable grace that is undeserved and unmerited. The Lord, Isaiah says, the Lord, Yahweh, his Father, placed on him the iniquities of us all. If you believe in him, if you believe in Jesus Christ, he bore your iniquities, every single one. Think about it. There's not a single f- sin. There's not a single bad attitude. There's not a single addiction. There's not a single failure. None of them escape the blood of Jesus Christ. They are all consumed and overwhelmed by his blood. They can't escape his blood. They are paid for completely. And it says the father crushed his son under the weight of our sin and its punishment. And think about it, as that man collapsed under that weight, (laughs) the weight of what you and I deserved, he said three words. Three words, and they echo across history to today. He said, it is finished. Paid in full. It is finished. No more payment is needed. None. You were bought with a price, and that's the gospel. And so if this is true, if what was done really did happen in history here, there's only two things, only two things that must follow as we close here. First, the first thing is this. We must believe it. We must trust it every single day of our lives. We can't simply just believe it as a, even a historic fact We must believe it as our hope, as our treasure, as our conviction every day for the rest of our lives. We can't afford not to if it's that glorious. The gospel must dominate for a Christian, for a person who says, I'm following Jesus, must dominate how we live and how we function in this world. We were born from an immense, radical deluge of grace. Secondly, if this is true, then we have to tell the world about this. We have to tell the world about this man who did this for us. We have to. Every single soul must know about this Christ, about who he is, that it's true, that if it's not true, it has zero value. We should forget about it right now. But if it's true, it has infinite, eternal value. And it is literally the most urgent news in the world. There is no other news that supersedes it. So to underscore this profound reality. I want to close by reading two passages um, from the mouth of Jesus, and I'm going to read them back to back as a means by which we start to wrestle with, in the coming weeks, what the gospel is. We're going to be looking at what it is for it to bear fruit, what it is for it to bear fruit in our own lives, what it is to be a faithful minister of the word, what it is to be a slave to Christ and be willing to give up everything for his glory. That's what the next few weeks are going to look like. But to close this week, and if you guys want to come up, um, 
I'm going to read a passage from Matthew, two passages, and I want you to think about the language Jesus is using to describe the gospel and to describe the urgency. Matthew 9, 35 through 38 says, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and affliction. And he saw the crowds, and Jesus had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then his disciples, he said to his disciples, the harvest, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. The harvest, Jesus says, and he would say to this day, is plentiful, it is massive. The fields outside these doors are white and they are ripe for people to hear the gospel. And then Jesus, in Matthew 28, we don't have a slide for this, sorry. Apologies, I <laughs> didn't send it to you. Uh, Matthew 28, 16 through 20, you guys will all recognize this. At the end of his ministry, after dying and resurrecting, and before his ascension, he has one final thing to say to his disciples. One last word to say to them. <clears throat> it says in Matthew 28, now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, the risen Christ, they worshipped him, but even then some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples, make believers, followers of me, of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, this is the greatest promise almost in all of Scripture, I would say. I am with you always, 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 even to the end of the age. The reason you and I are here today is because someone heard Jesus say that and said, yes, he's right, I'll do that. I will do that. Someone heard the command in Matthew 28 and said, so they encountered this grace and they said, I have no other purpose in my life but to know him and to make him known. That is my ultimate purpose and we are here today because of that. If it's a true story, what Jesus did, then it is the bedrock, the bedrock of every act we do as Christians. This good news is our life. And it's the only hope that we have for this world. So let's pray real quick. God, you are our King and our Lord. And you are the omnipotent, omniscient creator and sustainer of every single molecule in the entire cosmos, including everyone that is in this building and everyone who's outside this building. And therefore, you deserve to be honored and adored. And we ought to be grateful for who you are in and of that. But what's breathtaking is that you are all those things. 
but even though we are not predisposed, we are not inclined to love you like that naturally. You thought it good, it pleased you to send your son to be obliterated on a tree 2,000 years ago by your wrath in order that every human being who calls upon the name of the Lord would be saved and would never experience shame from their sin, would be free from their sin, would be free from the weight of the punishment of their sin that is deserved. That is absurd and it should not be. But that it is, is a grace to us. It's the meaning of grace. We have the word grace in our language because of that. And so I pray, Father, that as we worship you, as we take communion, as believers grab the body and blood of Jesus Christ represented by these elements, that you would help us have hearts that are sober to the gospel, that are sober to the weight of the cost of the cross, and that delight in God as we are now free to do with ever-increasing joy until we see him face to face, the one who saved us and redeemed us, and we get to enjoy heaven with him. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.